Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Lost Broadcasts, a podcast about TV shows that tried and failed to be the next Lost. Uh, I'm Hannah. I'm Esther. And we got it right this time. Hell yeah, two out of two. Okay, auspicious start. Um, And as you mentioned, uh, this is a show about what we call Lost Likes. If you want a definition of what that is, this is the last time that we'll be prompting you to go back to our first episode where we explain a little bit more of what that is, what Lost is, and what our show is. Other than that, let's just jump right ahead into our episode because this is going to be a really, really packed one. Yeah, uh, this is sort of like the finale of our uh, prologue uh, series of episodes, which are like the Mm -hmm. shows that premiered in the wake of the first season of Lost. Yeah, the 2005 Um, fall season of the Lost broadcast. Exactly. So we had Invasion on ABC, which was like, literally, Lost was the lead-in show. Mm -hmm. Surface was on NBC. Threshold was on CBS. And what was on Fox? Reunion. It was Reunion, yeah. Um, You know, it's not that much like Lost (laughs) um, compared to the other ones. Look forward to episode 10 where we're like two broke girls is a Lost to like. The central mystery is how they will make money to open up a cupcake stand or whatever they're trying to do. No, yeah, I mean... The cube is a Lost to like. The The mystery is whether they can solve the games in the cube with the help of Dwayne Wade. Yeah, it's... You know, all the other shows we've talked about so far are genre shows, right? They're Mm -hmm. sci-fi, they have, uh, you know that kind of element to it. Yeah. Um, which obviously is a big part of what Lost was. But um, Reunion doesn't. And what Reunion actually takes from Lost is just the flashbacks. If you haven't seen Lost, mm-hmm. um, every episode would focus on a different one of the main characters. And half of the episode would be flashbacks to their time before the island that sort of explains how they got there and what their deal is and, you know, why they are the way they are on the island. Um, and... Reunion is kind of like, what if they made the show entirely out of the flashbacks? Yeah. Um, In a really fun and unique way. Um, So, Hannah, why don't you tell us what the show is about? Yes. Um, I do want to push back a little bit on what you said about how there's no genre elements to it, because we actually get a couple in the pilot. Um, This is a one-hour mystery drama about a group of six high school friends, and on the night of their graduation, two of them get into a car wreck, Their car goes into water, and when they come out of the water, they find themselves changed, they're altered, they're kind of hybrids with something else. (laughs) Just kidding! That's not what the show is. No, can you imagine, though? Yeah. um, No hybrids. We have broken the streak of hybrids. There is divorce, though. Yes. We'll get to that. We'll get to the divorce. Um, But congratulations to Fox for being the only network smart enough to understand that Lost wasn't going to have hybrids. Um, what it actually is, is like Esther said, not supernatural at all. It is instead a soap opera, a primetime soap, um, that has like mystery crime thriller elements, but those are really kind of like tangential as we're going to get into. Um, it aired on Fox for nine episodes and it had an additional four unaired episodes that again, we were very thankfully able to get our hands on. Um... The part of the description that I gave there that's true is that it does follow six high school friends. Uh, And in the very first scene of the show, we learn that as of the present day, that being 2006, uh, one of the six has been murdered on the night of their 20-year high school reunion. And 
what a way we learned that in, right? <laughs> it's uh, the coolest opening monologue of all time, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, the first scene of the show is at, like, the funeral for the murdered friend, who we don't even know who it is yet. Mm-hmm. And it's just this guy who we never see again in the rest of the show. Um, and he's giving this eulogy that's like, there were six friends once, and always there were six, the six of them together. And you can't talk about one without the six. Thank you for joining me today as we mourn the loss of our dear friend. There were six of them. That's what I remember. Six friends, separately not unlike you or me, but together, like no group I'd ever known. But that was 1986, when I never would have thought that one of those six friends might be brutally murdered in their prime by an unknown assailant. Now, 20 years later, one thing remains unchanged. That the departed didn't provide us just one life worth watching, but six. Six lives so close that even now, I can't talk of one without talking about them all. And always there were six. Yes. (laughs) And if you wanted to tell their complicated history, you would need at least an order of 22 episodes. (laughs) It's very on the nose. It's the sort of thing that, like, made us look at each other immediately and be like, does this show have the dumb guy juice? Have we finally found a good one? Um, And the answer, uh, to not to drag it out any further, is yes. Um, We have been kind of speculating for the last three episodes on, like, what we would do when we found a show that was actually really good. (laughs) And I don't think we expected it to be this one. And I don't think we expected it to be like in this particular way. Um, But that all being said, what about that as a loss to like, right? Um, Like Esther said, I think about the flashbacks, but like, that's kind of a stretch right now. Is this not just like a kind of family drama ish type of soap opera show that has a, Flash horror type of thing. Well, the main conceit of this show is that every episode covers one year in the lives of our six characters. So it starts in 1986 Uh at their high school graduation. Yeah. And then... So what's the next episode? Episode two is 1987. That's insane. How about three? Uh, 1988. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Okay. We, but episode four does go to 2072. Weirdly, <laughs> yeah. I still don't fully understand where why everybody they, is hybrids. Where they, yeah, exactly. Which is how they got the hybrids in there. Finally. Um, no, but it, the way that it was supposed to be was that it would be, you know, a 20 episode season that would yeah. lead all the way finally to 2006 in the finale. Um, they didn't quite get there. No. They made it uh, nine episodes on the air, and then four remaining episodes were produced that were not aired in America. Yep. Um, they were only aired overseas in, like, uh, Brazil, for example. We think Singapore, probably. That's probably what we watched it on. I think so, yeah. Uh, the Brazilian one's important. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Brazil. <laughs> But no, they only got up to what? What was it? 1998. 1998. Which, I mean, structurally, that's just really funny to be like, we have the 2006 present day segments. Um, They have a really heavy blue tint on them, by the way, which is so funny. It's really funny to have like the present day segments have like the specific color grading to let you know it's like a different era. Yeah. Um, The way that we were joking about it is that it's like if a telenovela was setting a show, uh, a scene in like, Portland, Oregon, and washed everything with, like, the yellow piss filter. <laughs> just, like, 
<laughs> get some revenge for how we yeah. do it. Um, so the whole like pitch of the show really wasn't about the structural conceit, which, you know, in retrospect is like the thing that's really unique about it and cool. Mm-hmm. The pitch of the show was about the murder mystery, which was, uh, in a very sort of who killed Laura Palmer type way. Um, not only who the killer is, but initially who the victim is. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that bringing up Laura Palmer is important here because like something that we talk about is like a, when we're adjudicating corner cases, um, of whether or not we make an episode about something, one of the criteria that we use is like, would this have gotten greenlit in the form that it eventually was aired without Lost being on the air and without Lost being huge? And with this one, probably not. Um, There were plenty of like soap operas, primetime soaps on the air, especially teen primetime soaps, like the first couple episodes that it's are at the time. But like, I think for that type of, very ambitious like formal conceit where it's every episode is one year and every episode brings you at least theoretically a little closer to the long-term mystery um that is something that i think people saw the success of loss and was like okay viewers probably have a little more stomach for this than we thought they did yeah the success of lost initially opened up sort of the possibility space for Mm -hmm. tv um in some really important ways it, 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 you know, TV was not ready for reunion for sure. No. Um, and what it was bringing to especially network television. Yeah. How dare you TV? Um, but you know, I think it's fair to say that like a show with this structure would not have existed mm-hmm. without lost having aired the previous season. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean like the other things as far as like, we've been talking about how like, you know, some of these were clearly scripts that were left over from when uh, they had a, a shot to be the next X-Files and I got passed on. Um, you know, obviously, like, uh, Surface is super inspired by Spielberg. Um, this, I think the things that we've identified as, like, big inspirations for it are, like Esther said, Twin Peaks. And in fact, in one episode that I think is the year that Firewalk With Me came out, a secondary character shows up just looking like Laura Palmer for yep. some reason. Uncannily like Laura Palmer. <laughs> exactly like Laura Palmer. And um, also by Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy, which yes. they not only reference very directly, but like kind of predict where it was going in a very startling way. Yeah, so. somehow they got to Before Midnight bef- before he did. That's right, yeah. Um, um, so we... As you can tell, we're like, we're like already brimming to talk about so much of this. Um, we could probably be here for hours. And as much as like I am loath to be the type of like Doug Walker type of guy where like 80% of the uh, review of something, so to speak, is uh, summarizing the plot, like we're going to have to do that to some extent with this yeah. episode because there's so much shit that we don't want to miss. Yeah. Um, before we sort of get into that, I think we should sort of set up the idea of like when we when we're talking about Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. it's an it's a good way to frame why the show failed, and we'll yeah. get into more of the details of that later. But just to to give you a sort of a general understanding of what the show's deal is, this show is so disinterested in the murder mystery. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't even reveal who the victim is until episode five, um, and in the same way that like people grew frustrated with the way that Twin Peaks spun away from the substance of the Laura Palmer mystery 
into just like what is the what are the weird happenings in this town and what is the deal with all these characters Mm -hmm. um and that frustrated people because they you know the pitch was who killed laura palmer and they wanted to know and then once that mystery was answered by brute force by the network um this show kind of went off the rails and a lot of people lost interest Mm -hmm. um and you can see people having that experience with reunion of like you know the way that it was scheduled was fucked up and ways we'll get into, but like you can, you can tell that people are going to be watching this week to week and being like, why wasn't there anything about the murder this week? Like, yeah. Why was there no new clue? Why am I not getting like any characters in the past that like show up as like interesting potential suspects? Why am I not getting any like reveals in the present that are like, Oh, the detective just got 5% closer, give or take to solving the mystery. The detective is like barely a detective. Which in some hysterical ways that we'll talk about, but we, like he does not investigate him. the mystery. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think you know, it's an interesting way to sort of frame how reunion was probably viewed at the time, and we're, we're going to talk about the reviews as uh, contemporaneous reviews later too. But um, the one thing you shouldn't think about reunion is that it's slow paced, because when we talk about how there's, it's not interested in the mystery, we're not talking about. Uh, oh my god, the show is taking forever to get to stuff. It doesn't spin its wheels, ever. This is like the most fast-paced show I've ever watched. (laughs) It is the anti-surf Dracula. It is! So much happens in just the pilot that we were like, we were blown away by like, just how much, how much plot is in this show. The pilot would be one season of streaming TV. Literally, yeah. And like, that would come out like once every three years. So they would be doing the same amount of stuff at a slower pace. (laughs) Than what Reunion managed with every episode. And I think uh, a good way to demonstrate that um, we'll get to sort of after we introduce our main characters. We have an interesting interesting format change up for this episode of The Lost Broadcast. But first... Interesting game. The first of The Lost Broadcasts... No, I guess that would have been the uh, thing that we did last time in a segment that... Can we just get it out of the way? Yeah, okay, let's just do it. Um, Okay, welcome to the Smash Your Double episode four, High Smash Your Double NDA. Uh, Anthony Simons, Draymond Green, uh, PJ Tucker, uh, yeah, Robert Tobias Williams Harris, III, uh, absolutely. Bobby Shane Portis, Sharp. Tobias Harris. Uh, I said Tobias Harris. You said Tobias Harris. Right, well, that's the end of the That's segment. insane. All right. Uh, thank you for listening to another episode of Smash Your Double. Yeah. We know everyone loves those. We just don't have time for it this week because this month. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like this is a weekly show. <laughs> See you again in one year for the next Smash Your Double. Um, so... Yeah, we have uh, our six main characters and then the seventh character, that detective that we mentioned. Um, And the way that they kind of break down into pilot is that they're introduced kind of as being two um, love triangles that are kind of linked more by circumstance. Uh, But we'll just like introduce each of those in turn. Uh, The first love triangle is between... Uh, Sam Brewster and the two boys she's choosing between, those being Will Malloy and Craig Brewster. Yeah. No points for guessing which one she eventually picks. <laughs> uh, but what Sam's deal is, like, she's a, she's a girl next door. She's mm-hmm. very sweet. She's very sensitive. She's very caring about her friends. Yeah. I mean, all six of them care about their friends. But yeah. she's a caring personality. She comes across as, like, mature, but, you know, potentially vulnerable and, and able to make mistakes. Um... You know, she's somebody who eventually becomes a doctor, and I think that that speaks to her being, like, you know, as a 
character, because these are all very archetypal characters at the start of the show, mm-hmm. but they like definitely think of her as somebody who's like kind and, and empathetic and nurturing, but maybe gets in over her head a little bit. She is also the murder victim, right? Spoilers. Yes. Sorry. Um, we, we revealed that before the fifth episode of this yeah. uh, series. On if you don't listen to the Lost broadcast because you're going to run out and watch these shows. And we're certainly not going to recommend right now that anyone watch no, anything. don't do that. It would be very difficult to go, like, certainly not if it gets put up on streaming anywhere. Like, if, um, you know, Fox is just like, oh, fuck, we're running out of content. Let's put Reunion up on Hulu. We are pulling this episode down <laughs> and we are hunting you down. We are coming to your house if you have listened to it uh, to remove it from your memory. Yeah. Uh, so, but the next person we should talk about is Will. Yes. Um, who's very, you know, kind of a puppy dog. He's very loyal. He is um, a little howdy doody. Yeah. He's sort of, the every time I think about him, I think he should be talking in a Southern accent, but he doesn't have one. It's weird, right? Because he grew up in upstate New York. Yeah. <laughs> They're all from upstate New York, but he definitely has that type of, like, attitude where he should be saying sir and ma'am in every sentence. Yeah. Um, he eventually becomes a lawyer, but that's there's a real eventually on that. Like, five separate asterisks. There's, like, the asterisk, a cross, like, <laughs> we'll a, a, the number one in superscript. <laughs> we'll get into all of all of that, yeah. for sure. Um, we should guess we should talk about Craig. Yeah, um, whose will's, like best friend and sam's boyfriend um and he is the rich prick of the group right he is somebody who is like not necessarily malicious although we'll get into later how he is frankly i think one of tv's great villains (laughs) um but he's somebody who's kind of had like a charmed life and who refuses to take accountability for like anything um and he eventually after spending some of the season as like a dilettante um, goes into politics and becomes a congressman and things of that nature. Yeah, very spoiled. Not necessarily, when we talk about him being a villain, he's not like always trying to fuck with people in like an evil way. Mm-hmm. He's just like very selfish and very like um, willing to dodge responsibility at, at every point in his life. Yeah, uh, very great character. Now, in the second love triangle, um, at the center of that is a guy named Aaron Lewis, who is kind of like, the nerdy guy of the group. He is a little snarky um, in ways that are mostly, thankfully, like actual wit instead of like what passes as snark and banter. Um, I I would say it falls somewhere in between those two poles. I don't know if I would call him actually witty. Yeah. But the writing is certainly better than what the other thing you're describing. What I'll say is that like, it's like your friend who thinks he's witty as opposed to like somebody who is clearly being written and overwritten. More realistic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he eventually becomes like a tech executive and like entrepreneur. He invents the internet kind of. He has a quote unquote internet company. Yeah. Which Hannah swears they at one point say specifically is a search engine. At two specific points. I have no memory of that. I just remember them saying internet company a lot. Um, yeah. And that is a love triangle situation in that one girl is pining for him and he is pining for another girl. The girl panning for him is... It's more of a love straight line. It's a love straight line, frankly. Um, but the girl panning for him is Carla Holland, a.k.a. perfect character. We love her. character. We will defend her. Um, expect a bunch of, like, posts on the Lost Broadcast Twitter account that are just her outfits. She wears little hats. She wears big blazers. 
Um, she shows up to work in like 1998 in like kind of a chic sporty corset. Um, she's the best. Her deal is that she's kind of more like the bubbly, awkward girl. Um, she is also sort of girl next door, but in a very different way than Sam. Um, but she is like the one out of the six who maybe thinks that she is like the least going on, the least in a way of like dreams that can be instantly achieved. She worries that she's going to be left behind and her kind of like career passion is photography. Um, and then the girl that Aaron is in love with is Jenna Moretti, who is the hot one. The hot one. Her whole thing is that she is hot. Um, she immediately moves to Los Angeles to become an actress. Mm-hmm. Her storylines, as we'll get into, are not that interesting. She's not a super interesting character. She is the character. queen of the C-plot. Not a super interesting character, but very charmingly performed. Uh, huge shout out to Amanda Rigetti, who we also watched last night in the Friday the 13th remake. Yes. Um, a genuine scream queen. Yeah, yeah. We, we were just imagining that it was the character of Jenna Moretti in that role and just being like, hooray, they'll love this in Bedford, New York. <laughs> um, <laughs> when when this, there's that episode where the school has Jenna Moretti day, yeah, it's I think so that cute. all those elementary school kids were watching the Friday the 13th remake. Yeah. <laughs> just like... Mom, can you take us to the theater so we can see the oiliest boobs ever created? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, like we said, she's not necessarily the most um, fast-moving character compared to a lot of these other ones, but uh, we love looking at her. We love the way that she does a lot of, like, fun facial overacting. Um, I've been delighting Esther for the last couple days by just, like, making Jenna Moretti faces at her when I speak. (laughs) Um, so clearly you've got a lot of mileage out of her. Yeah. Um, the last main character is Detective Ken Margarino. Wide Kobe, as we call him. He looks like if you took Kobe Bryant into Photoshop and, like, stretched his face out horizontally. Yeah, just here, if you want a sense of what he looks like, just look up picture of Kobe Bryant not smiling, slap a little blue tint onto that, widen him in Photoshop by about 10 to 20%, and then... Put some flame decals on there so the viewer can maybe, like, guess where Kobe is. Like, yeah. Um, But, yeah, he is a very, like, you know, on the surface, he seems like he's going to be, like, a tough, hard-boiled, no-nonsense detective. And what we very quickly learn is that he is uh, a fuck-up who is horrible at his job. (laughs) Not interested in really doing the work of detectiveness. And yeah. has insane load-bearing grudges against anywhere from one to six of the friends. He hates all of them. Yeah. And we don't even learn why he hates all of them in the run of the show. We learn why he mm-hmm. hates a couple of them. Yeah. But he just has deep resentment for these six young people. It's kind of implied that he even hates Sam, the victim. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> what did she do to you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, with these seven characters, we could, like... This episode would be five hours long mm-hmm. if we just sat here. And it is, by the way. You're listening to this and it's five hours long. You can see the time code. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like most just... of it is comprised of us weeping. <laughs> so if you just like seek to around like three hours, 12 minutes, it'll be us just like sobbing back and forth and just being like, no, <laughs> the beauty of their unexpected lives. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, normally what we do on this show is we'll go through the entire plot episode by episode, but so much happens. No, we don't really do that. We, we kind of do. Yeah, but we get really bored with it and skip. Like, we did not say what every threshold episode was because that's usually what's going on, right? Is that, like, 
there's not enough fucking shit going on for us to actually like give an episode by episode breakdown. We are going to kind of do that this time though. And the way in which we're planning to do that specifically is for each of us to tackle one of these six characters, uh, mm-hmm. probably the two that have the most going on, and try to lay out everything that we can about them from memory. Uh, and you better believe we are going to miss some stuff. Oh, yes. Uh, so I am going to be reciting everything that happens to Carla and Esther. I will be reciting everything that happens to Will. Okay, I'm flipping an imaginary coin in my hand, like Two-Face, or perhaps Anton Chigurh. Okay. It is 2007 to 2008. Shh, caught the coin. Bam. Flipped it. It's heads. Did you pick heads? Oh, I guess I did. That means you go first. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I love playing games with you. Isn't, isn't it fun to play a game? Yeah, okay. Right, let me know when I'm ready to start the clock. Five minutes on the clock. Try to say everything you can remember about our friend Will Malloy. Okay. Ready, set, go. All right, so the first thing that happens to Will is he's driving home from the graduation party with Craig. Craig is the one driving. Craig's been drinking. They get into an accident, and at the hospital, uh, the driver of the other car is, you know, severely injured. And because Will wasn't drinking, Craig basically says, hey, why don't you just tell the police you were driving? And that way, you know, it wasn't illegal. It was just an accident. And it's fine. And uh, Will says, oh, okay. Um, but unfortunately, the other driver, after being sent home from the hospital, dies of his injuries. Wah, wah. Um, and Will is sentenced to prison uh, for manslaughter for one year. Which everyone in, the, everyone in the courtroom reacts to like, oh my God, he got a year in prison? That's insane. Like yeah. for killing someone? <laughs> um, <laughs> How could they? So Will goes to prison. Um, and when he comes out, uh, he's working for his uh, dad, doing like landscaping. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, comes from like a poor family compared to Craig, who comes from a super rich family. And Craig's rich dad, Russell Brewster, offers keeps trying to offer Will a job. Uh, to, like, thank him for taking the fall for Craig. And he keeps trying to turn him down. Um, But then one day, Will uh, encounters his old cellmate, um, who learns that he's best friends with Craig, this rich guy, and tries to blackmail him into robbing Craig's house. So they do that, and they break into Craig's house, and um, Craig discovers them. And in the scuffle, uh, Craig shoots the cellmate, who, like, kind of ambles away and is just never seen again. Yeah, it's (laughs) very cool of him. And here's where the timeline gets a little wonky for me. I think what happens next is that he goes to work for Craig's dad, um, because now they both have things on each other, obviously. Um, and, you know, he's Craig's dad's like a real estate developer, and Will is pretty good at what he does. Um, but unfortunately, the FBI comes knocking and says, we're going to send you back to jail if you don't help us spy on Mr. Brewster. Um... So, of course, he's forced into doing that. Uh, Eventually, he brings the whole company down, and Craig's dad goes to jail, uh, which creates a whole new rift between between him and Craig. And he decides the only way to get out of all of these horrible things that have happened is to go into the army. Um, (laughs) He's sent overseas. He serves in Desert Storm. He makes friends with a guy who is one of the three people to die in Desert Storm. (laughs) Imagine sucking that much at war. uh, he comes back, and the dead guy's sister, he had, like, a message for his sister to, that he wanted Will to deliver. Um, Will does so, and then he falls in love with her. Um, 
oh my gosh, then what happens? They do break up at one point. And then I think what happens next is that Will tries to become a lawyer and then he's going to go to work for Craig's like political campaign in some capacity. And at this point he meets a woman who is the daughter of a sitting congressman whose seat uh, Craig wants after the congressman retires, but the congressman won't give it up. Um, and one of the reasons he won't is that uh, in investigating this guy who is uh, dating his daughter, he finds out about the car accident and he learns um, that Will is quote-unquote prison scum mm -hmm. who can never date his daughter. And he uses this as leverage to like, you know, I'm never giving up my seat to you, Craig. Um, but Will is pretty persistent. He's really fallen in love with this woman. So he, they continue dating. Um, and one day, Will and Craig and the congressman and Craig's dad all go on a hunting trip. And the congressman falls down a hill. <laughs> and he gets impaled on a tree branch and dies. Um, he dies, notably, while Will is going to get help. But Craig stays behind and sort of, like, allows it to happen because he's evil. Mm -hmm. Um so a year after this, he's still dating the congressman's daughter, and Craig, trying to be nice, tells uh, the daughter that, oh yeah, your dad on his deathbed told me how much he loved Will. Um, but then, oh my god, I forgot. Oh my god, I forgot. Tell me. At the very beginning of the season, something very important <laughs> yes. happens, which is that Will sleeps has slept with Sam, um, and unbeknownst to him, she gets pregnant. Mm -hmm. And then there's a whole storyline with that that we does, Will does not even interact with no. until the end of the season, which we're going back to now, where, um, oh my god, I have three seconds left. So you got this. Will finds out that he has this child. Craig is furious that Sam, like, you know, cheated on him, but didn't really because they were kind of on and off at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and he, uh, as revenge, Craig tells the girl um, that... Will asked him to lie about the congressman's final words, and then he goes with Sam to find the adopted, to find the baby and the adopted mother, but they both died to fire. Amazing. That is five minutes on the dot. You fucking did it. Five minutes on the dot. Um, that is what it feels like to watch this show. <laughs> <laughs> that insane density of shit. Need I remind you, that is one of six main characters over only 13 episodes. Um, again, like... That would happen to the sole lead of a show over, um, like, four seasons in today's landscape of, of nonsense. Yeah. Um, you did a really good job. Thank you. You missed a couple things. Oh, my God. Uh, somehow, there was yet more than that. Um, so, you didn't mention, for example, the fact that the reason uh, that the FBI got involved with Will was that he took his own initiative to bribe an EPA official. Right. Because he needed money to fund uh, something for Sam that he didn't know what it was. And what it secretly was is that Sam wanted to hire a private investigator to uh, look into what had happened to her daughter that she had later given up for adoption. Mm -hmm. um, also, you didn't mention the fact that... Uh, you did mention that uh, Craig's dad gets arrested eventually by the FBI. You didn't bring up that that happens at Craig's wedding rehearsal dinner. Right. And the FBI agent makes sure to be a catty little bitch by being like, oh, and by the way, Will, you helped us with this moi <laughs> right in front of Craig's dad, who's just like, how could you? Yeah. Uh, this comes back later at Thanksgiving where Craig's dad shows up and demands that Will be thrown out for the betrayal. But Craig sides with him, uh, with Will over his own dad. Um, 
you didn't mention the fact that when he is Craig's campaign manager, he gets caught up in uh, the Laura Palmer style girl that we mentioned. Oh my god. Coming back and accusing Craig of having a long-term affair with her and not just like a short-term like cheat that was previously known about. Um, but then he like kind of vouches for Craig and says like, well, I don't have any proof, but Sam, you, you won't want to divorce him over this because I can tell that he's not lying. And then finally, um, the uh, last thing that happens before that um, hunting trip that you mentioned is that like after Catherine, uh, the daughter of the congressman, tells her congressman dad about, you know, like, oh, yeah, Will was in uh, like an accident, but he was covering for his friend. You know, like her dad figures out who it would have been. They have a big falling out that gets barely mended by the time of the hunting trip, only to get double broken again upon the news of like the the secret kid and everything. So there were more (laughs) twists and turns. You got the structure of everything right, but it was about 20 to 30% more like insane and high voltage at any given moment. Absolutely ridiculous. All right, I'm going to take the phone now. Yes. Because now it's your turn. Oh, no. I was so smug with my uh, having the reference document in front of me, but let's see what I can do now. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready to tell you all about Carla Holland. Three, two, one, go. Carla Holland is in love with Aaron, who is in turn in love with Jenna. She is uh, not brave enough to confess her feelings in the pilot and thinks that, oh, uh, Aaron is never going to see me as anything more than like a brother-sister relationship. Um, But she finally works up the courage to do that. And the moment she does, um, she walks in on, by which I mean, like she's walking up to the house and she sees through like the front bay window, Aaron sharing his first kiss with Jenna. So she just decides that like, no, there's nothing for me in Bedford. She had been planning to just stay there and help her dad run like the town general store or something but instead goes off to London with Sam. Uh, Sam's taking a gap year before she goes pre-med. And uh, Carl just hangs out with her there for a year, comes back to Bedford to help her dad out eventually after like seeing Sam through the birth of her secret baby, which she knows about. Um, and then like tries to get a photography career off the ground, but mostly fails with that. Um, she has a couple of big opportunities doing stuff for Jenna's budding acting career that um, end up not going anywhere after Jenna is pressured into taking like a much higher profile uh, photographer's work. Um, There's also a very major plot where Carla is um, acting as the nanny to Amy, who is Sam's secret daughter, Uh, Because Sam has, like, decided that she regrets giving up the baby for adoption and wants to be in her life. The parents are like, no, we're not going to let you do that. And so um, Carla interposes herself and is like, well, I'll just be the nanny and constantly, like, give you updates on how your daughter's developing and all that. Um, And she is, uh, in the capacity of doing that, starting to sleep with Paul, the husband of the adoptive parents, And one day she thinks that uh, the mom, Megan, has like experienced a psychotic break of some kind. Megan just runs away and uh, Carla just moves in with Paul and starts sleeping with him more. But eventually what she realizes is that Megan 
was the right one the whole time because Paul was abusing her and Paul starts abusing Carla too and uh, she kind of weathers that and suffers that for a few years until it's Amy's first day of school. Uh, Carla and Paul are waiting outside of the school at the end of class and Amy does not show up. She has been kidnapped. She has disappeared mysteriously. What we learn at the end of that episode is that it is in fact Carla herself along with the returning Megan who have kidnapped the baby into Megan's custody, flown around the country on Jenna's husband's private jet. Um, and she is confronted over this by Paul and pulls a fucking gun on him and uh, says that, like, go ahead, call the cops, I'll kill you and they'll never convict me. She, like, rolls up her sleeve and says, like, look at all these bruises from you abusing me. Um, you know, I will just tell them that this is in self-defense. And from that, she manages to get away from Paul. She spends, after that, most of the series just kind of, like, chilling, I'd say. She has a brief, brief relationship with um, uh, Aaron. She shares her first kiss with him, I think a little before she gets intimate with Paul and has sex with him once, but denies uh, his request to come to her, uh, come with him to Prague for three weeks. Um, Cause she felt like, oh, we would spoil this one perfect moment. You gotta do your before sunrise thing alone. Um, she does uh, eventually fall for another guy named Peter, uh, who we learn at the very first moment that he's introduced, it flashes forward to 2006 and we see that he is fucking dead by 2006. But she does eventually like marry him. Um, and like he has something of a rivalry with Aaron cause there's still something clearly going on between Aaron and Carla. But Carla is trying to be a good, uh, you know, like fiance and later wife to Peter. He gets a cancer diagnosis and she uh, first has to be like, oh shit, um, I need to get you money for like these experimental medical treatments because chemo is not working. And what she has to do to do that is to sleep with a shady insurance agent guy um, because her first plan was to go to Aaron for the money because he's a startup multimillionaire, but he has had his assets frozen from a completely unrelated divorce plot, and so she can't rely on that. But then at the last moment, he calls through and says like, hey, I can come, I can pull through here. We're good, you don't need to do any of that. And so she doesn't sleep with the guy, but then at the final thing she does in the series is find a picture of Sam to inform that going to Maine house burn down plot. That's time. <laughs> okay. Okay. This is the most adrenaline that I've ever had in my heart. It seems like it's fucking racing. We have uh, created a new genre called action podcasting. <laughs> okay. We'll never know what's around the next corner. So a little peek behind the curtain. This is our second attempt at recording this episode. Mm-hmm. I forgot things yeah. in mine. You forgot things in yours. Yeah. On our second tries each. Um, I still I th- forgot things. You still forgot things. Um, That's insane. Number one. You forgot that uh, in 1993, Carla tries to restart her relationship with Aaron after they've slept together several years prior, but it's derailed because at that exact moment, uh, Aaron's French lover, who he had a one night stand with several years prior, returns to America with his love child. Um, That's right. You even said love child the previous time we tried to record this. (laughs) You forgot that Peter asked Carla to move to Chicago with him, but she didn't want to leave her friends. And he got really weird about the idea of still being friends with the people you knew in high school. Yeah. Um, You also forgot, very important, (gasps) uh, 
um, about the episode where Aaron, still clearly in love with Carla, insisting that he knows more about Carla than Peter, makes Carla create a quiz about her life called the Carla Quiz that both Aaron and Peter will take to see who knows her better. I mean, clearly what I was just doing now is a Carla Quiz, and I scored yes. like well, but not super well. You ran out of time also, but you did completely lie over everything that happens to her in the last episode, which is that she gets the job at the photography company where she and Kat realizes that her boss yeah. is Paul, her abusive ex. Um, and he acts like he's been to therapy and like he wants to make things right. But when she goes to HR about not wanting to work with him, he like tries to beat her up in a parking garage. And <laughs> yeah. Then he's fired and she gets his job. A really benevolent security camera. Just like, <laughs> no, there's an amazing shot of like, um, he's trying to act like he wasn't doing anything and a security guard goes, but the camera saw. And there's a shot of a security camera like turning on its axis to face the camera as though it's looking directly at him. Yeah. It's extraordinary. And there is a, a planned plot um, from what the showrunner has said that after Peter would eventually die, uh, Carla would learn to love again into arms of that security camera. <laughs> uh, I think it rules so much that... We did, I did not have time. Neither of us remembered everything. We had five minutes to talk about what happens to one character in one season of TV. Um, there are five more characters with an equal amount of plot over the course of these 13 episodes. I'd say four characters with an equal amount of plot and Jenna. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's fair. Um, um, but but that, if, that, if that doesn't give you a sense of what reunion is like, yeah. truly nothing will. Yeah, it's like... Everything that happens to them, as you can tell, is very soapy. Um, and the show is not ashamed of that. It is not winking or self-referential about it in any way. And importantly, our love of it is not winking or ironic in any type of way. Yeah. This is not a show that is like so bad it's good. It is not a show where we're like laughing at it. Um, we just genuinely love how goofy, how melodramatic, how high the emotional stakes are at everything how like everything is is so emotionally just like rarefied um esther during the final episode said in the most plaintive voice possible oh the show is leaving everyone in such turmoil that's a very good impression of what i sound like yeah it's exactly what esther sounds like uncanny um, if you want me to record more Esther clips, just send me an email. Uh, my price is $50 for a 30-second <laughs> Esther clip. Uh, if you want to hear her say that she has a stomach ache, if you want to hear her recant about a movie that she gave one and a half star and that you have been sending death threats to her over. I will also do this in my authentic Esther voice for $100. Yeah. I'm, I'm there to drive your price up. That's what true love is. <laughs> exactly. Um... Yeah, so, I mean, that right there is the two characters that probably have the most going on. Um, we're not going to go into everything about everyone else, because, again, we would be here for, like, years and years. Um, but, like, yeah, it is those seven characters, the six friends and Margarino. Always there were six. Plus, Always there. Plus one detective. <laughs> yes, one detective who hates them. <laughs> I would love if he was just like in more flat, like of the uh, pre-2006 episodes, just silently hating on them from the background <laughs> in various scenes. Well, I, I mean, hmm, that could, you, we kind of do get that. But Do you want to dive into that? Maybe we should just talk about Margarito, uh, first of all. Yeah. Because Margarito is subject of one of the show's best moments early on. Um, 
so <laughs> in one of the first episodes, we get this incredible, incredible moment where in 2006, uh, Marjorino is interrogating Will, who's a priest by this point, and we mm-hmm. never learn why. We never get that far no. um, into the into the advancement of the story. He's the world's saddest little priest. Um, but basically, by this point in the story, Hannah and I had had this prediction of like, I bet Marjorino is the son of the guy who died in the car crash because they make a point of mentioning like they don't show the guy who died, but they make a point of mentioning that's like he you're le- he's leaving three kids and Marjorino mm-hmm. is all like has this like rage and this grudge specifically against will who was convicted of the crime so we're like i bet he's the son of of the guy who died Mm -hmm. um so there's this amazing moment where he's being interrogated um and i want to make sure i get it right yeah basically what happens is he's saying uh you know he's talking about their fathers right Mm -hmm. and he's saying um you know i had a i had a father an amazing father an amazing father unfortunately he died before I was born. And when we heard that, we were like, yes, yes, yes. everything adds up. It's going to be this. And was it very next thing he says? says, thankfully, my mother remarried. Oh, no, no, no. You're getting a little ahead of yourself here. Because what he says before that is, my father died in Vietnam. And we're just thinking for like three seconds, like, oh, wait, were we wrong? Right, yeah. But then the very next thing he says is, says, thankfully, my mother remarried to a wonderful man. Unfortunately, he also died in a car crash. <laughs> yeah. It's the most amazing. It, it really just it, it, exp, it really showcases how good this show is at like stacking its misdirects. Like it always knows exactly what you're going to be thinking yeah. at any given moment. And then like if if you're right about it, it knows how to like fake you out and think that you're wrong for half an episode. Yeah, it is. A note that I had as we were watching the show is this watching the show feels like getting crossed over by Alan Iverson. <laughs> Something that just like popped into my head is that like it feels like you're going up against a new boss in a FromSoft game <laughs> and you have learned how to dodge like the first half of his attack string. Yeah. But then he just comes at you with more shit. He enters phase two. Because we, we predicted a lot of the stuff in the show. It's not like especially like, innovative or unexpected in in a lot of its plotting, right? Like we said, very archetypal, especially at the start. But we would predict something, and typically that would happen within, like, 10 seconds. Yeah, which is immediately the show would go into whatever we were predicting. Yeah, either we would outright predict it, or we would sort of be half-joking with each other and be like, wouldn't it be awesome if the show did XYZ right now? And then it would immediately do that. But consistently, we would underestimate how many of these insane leaps would happen per episode. And so that, like, both gave us this amazing feeling of, like, feeling rewarded for being like, ooh, I'm so invested and I can tell where this is going to go next and I'm so excited for it. And then also constantly being surprised because, like, we're used to shows that would do about half of these insane twists. Exactly. Um, They share friendship. They share heartbreak. They share a deadly secret. One of you pulled the trigger, and I happen to think it's you, Father Malloy. Reunion, all new at the OC at 9 Central Fox Thursday. The thing with Marjorino is that as the sort of we've been describing his grudge against Will, as you can see, he's not really a detective. He just like hates no. these six and he claims he can place all of them at the scene of the crime. 
<laughs> so most of the show is about him not like trying to solve the mystery, but just about like fucking with them basically and trying yeah. to get like weeding them out, assuming that one of them will eventually reveal themselves. Um, the f- although. He just wants their lives to be a little worse. He just wants to put a little more blue filter on everything they're going through. <laughs> the first thing uh, we see him do chronologically, though, mm-hmm. is he eventually does show up in the flashback timeline. In like 91, 92. Yeah, basically, uh, he shows up wanting to assassinate Will Malloy. I think this is the Thanksgiving episode. It is the Thanksgiving episode, you're right. Um, so he goes to the apartment where they're all going to be with a gun, because like he's like, oh my god, this fucking Will Malloy guy killed my father, I'm going to kill him. Do you want to describe how he looks in 1992? He looks like... So if you've played Metal Gear Solid 1, the character of the DARPA chief, and when I say that, I don't just mean like he looks like if that was a guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he looks like the PlayStation 1 render... Oh, the tarp chief. Their attempt to uh, age him down involved, like, de-loading his textures. It's it's kind of extraordinary, because obviously there was no digital, like, enhancement of this whatsoever. No. But he looks like he's made of ten polygons. It's so cool. (laughs) Um, But there's this amazing... His his whole thing in this episode is, like, I'm gonna kill Will Malloy. But then, um... Will gets inside before he can sh- in the, to the apartment before he can shoot him. So he goes to the diner across the street where he meets this woman and has like a meet cute with her. Um, and then as he sees Will leaving the apartment, he goes outside and he bumps into Will and Will's like, hey, man, you dropped something. And he goes to uh, Margarino goes to pick it up. And it's a piece of paper with the girl's phone number on it. And that girl turns out to be his wife, who he's having marital <laughs> issues with in 2006. Um, and then his wife uh, leaves him, so he moves into an apartment, which is like a sniper's nest across from Craig's apartment. <laughs> yeah. um, then he gets hit by a car. Yeah, um, it's he's so cool. He is not interested, like Esther has been saying, in doing any detective work. And it's so great. He eventually learns that Will had been framed, right? That Will was taking the fall for Craig. And he, like, does nothing with that information except just sort of, like, doing a control F, find and replace <laughs> on all his speeches. Exactly, exactly. Where it's like, you know, I hate all six of you, especially Will, becomes I hate all six of you, especially Craig. Exactly. For the rest of the series. Um, he also does this weird thing in the last episode where he sends all these ransom letters. Like, someone is sending the 2006 versions of the characters these letters like i know what you did you have to put two hundred thousand dollars in this trash can or i'll tell everyone and then he shows up later at their apartment and is like hey guess who guess who it was and you wouldn't have done that unless you had something to hide so like 13 episodes in this is the like sum total of the investigation he's done is proving that they might want to hide something Mm -hmm. (laughs) whether or not that has anything to do with the murder still he cannot prove yeah it's that and having like one-on-one interviews with the surviving friends like one per episode (laughs) um which is how you get like the victim revealed by episode five because it's like that's when you run out of uh people to have interviewed right Mm -hmm. um but yeah that's margarino he is an incredible amount of fun to have on our screens um you can tell that like if he had maybe been a more traditional and competent detective who was actually getting incrementally closer to an answer every episode the show might have done a little bit better in the ratings probably it would have helped but it's not as much fun as no insane obsessive grudge detective he he, he has the railing given style of law enforcement where he is 
very passionate about everything except for his job. Exactly. Um, I want to talk about Jenna next because as we yes. say, Jenna is the queen of the C plot. Um, she very rarely is like the main focus of an episode. Here, here is Jenna's whole arc from the beginning of the series to the end. She gets famous in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, she beards for an evil gay superstar actor. Yeah. She gets less famous in Hollywood and then she starts fucking married guys. <laughs> Which is so cool. That is, that is how her arc progresses from beginning to end. With one intercession, <laughs> there's one episode where she has something very interesting happen to her. Yes, it's her mom. Yeah, she has this drunk mom who's like, appears a little earlier in the series, like ruining one of Jenna's parties with her rather stereotypical drunk momness. Mm-hmm. Um, so she like is like, oh, my fucking drunk mom. How will I ever get away from her? Uh, one episode opens, she's on set of her movie. And her assistant's like, Jenna, you have 16 calls from your mom. I can't make her go away this time. And Jenna's like, fine, I'll talk to this bitch. And she picks up the phone and her mom is like, Jenna, I'm dying of AIDS. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You need to come to my deathbed right now. What she says when she's in the hospital um, meeting Jennifer last time is, my promiscuous lifestyle has caught up with me. I believe she says, my promiscuous lifestyle got me more than I bargained for. Even better. Which is just funny, like how a show in 2005 had to talk about AIDS, like still. One of the showrunners um, of this show, I believe, did cut his teeth on after school specials in like the yeah. early 90s. This so, is like... the moment where that really shows through. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that that is most of what Jenna gets up to. The AIDS mom subplot is, is the biggest moment of interest for sure. Uh-huh. Um, but like... I don't think when we see her, it's ever, like, an issue. No, not at all. Her. I don't want to imply that, like, oh, yeah. Jenna's subplots are such a drag. She's all, she's a fun character. For one, uh, she looks amazing. Um, she has a certain type of jawline, and if you're wondering what we <laughs> mean by that, refer to our surface episode where we kind of get very deranged about Lake Bell and the way that she <laughs> looks and acts, and just, like... Copy and paste all of that into here and add another like 15 minutes of runtime of us like obsessing. <laughs> um, she has insanely cool outfits. I am recording this podcast right now in the exact <laughs> outfit that they would have her wear in the 2001 episode. Uh, so if you've heard like a very loud sound of leather pants like creaking against the chair, then like <laughs> it's just because I'm that dedicated to podcasting. I'm like half in pajamas right now. I'm not that dedicated to podcasting. That's more of like a Sam outfit after she's come home from a long day of residency. That's true. Yeah. Why don't we just talk about Sam a little? But now that since I'm the queen of podcast transitions, you are. But <laughs> before you do, I'm so sorry. I just need to talk about Jenna's acting career very briefly. Oh yes, we should. Mm-hmm. Because um, she has like we never really see her on set that much um it's not really a show that's about like the drama of her being on set it's more about just like when she intersects with other characters in the group but we can get a sense of what she has starred in which includes um kind of like an erotic summer adventure movie called sunset summer 2 a movie where she plays Michael Keaton's wife and gets killed after Michael doesn't pay his gambling debts. Uh-huh. A movie called Perfect Ten, where she's an Olympic gymnast who's also a KGB spy. She narrowly avoids being in Hudson Hawk. From there, her acting career withers because um, she has an evil gay husband uh, who she decides to stop being a beard to after... Right. 
he embarrasses himself at Thanksgiving. She brings him to Thanksgiving and he gets there and has this amazing moment where, you know, they break off into the kitchen Mm -hmm. and he's like, great group you have here. Great group. Really great. Really great. Now, can I leave and go fuck men already? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sick of being around these people. I want to fuck men. Great group. Really great. So what do you say we, uh, what, spend another half an hour here and I go over to Carrie's on Lexington? There's a producer there. Yeah, and she's like, no, you have to stay. These are my friends. And he's like, okay, fine. And then immediately goes towards the nearest man who is Will and is just like, hi, we're having sex now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, because like she gets like sick of him being an evil gay man, she divorces him and her career languishes for most of the decade. Um... Uh, and she mostly does like off-Broadway stuff, but then in the very final episode, it's strongly implied that she is going to be in the Lord of the Rings yes. trilogy as Eowyn. <laughs> and we came to this determination because in the final episode, she's talking to Aaron and she's like, yeah, my agent just got me this role. It's 1998. We're going to be like shooting next year for six months in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, it's not like a big role, but like, you know, it's sizable. And we're just thinking like six month shoot, sizable role. Yeah. New Zealand, 1999. Clearly she's been cast in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and if it's she's there for six months, she's not just going to be like Elf Maiden 3. No. Um, there are only so many women in those movies. <laughs> yeah, and by process of elimination. It would have to be Eowyn. Which, like, big shame, by the way, that we didn't have um, Miranda Otto, the actual actress of Eowyn, show up as, like, a false lead killer, being like, <laughs> it should have been me! <laughs> and now I will kill one of your friends! <laughs> Um, yeah, but that's, I think, all there is to say about our dear friend, Jenna. Say the word Sam. Sam. You're right. I'm the queen of podcast, <laughs> as the queen of podcast transitions, I agree. It's time to talk about Sam. Um, I love you, Esther. I love you, too. Um, Sam, obviously, as we say, is the victim, so she doesn't have any 2006 stuff. Although there is an amazing misdirect with that. In the episode, in episode five, when they've mm-hmm. gotten it down to, they've shown Carla... Um, well, Will, Aaron, and Craig in 2006. Mm-hmm. So you know the victim is either Sam or Jenna. And it's obviously going to be Sam because, I mean, we just told you what kind of plots Jenna has. Like, it would be really weird for her to be the victim. Yeah, it would have sucked if it was Jenna. So we we kind of already knew going in that it was probably going to be Sam. But they do this amazing thing where they cut to 2006 and this video feed of her sitting down and being like, all right, I'm going to tell my story. And we were like, oh my God, she's giving the depos- her deposition to Margarino. That must mean Jenna is the victim. But again, this is a great example of the show knowing that you think you're one step ahead of it and saying, all right, you are one step ahead, but we're going to fuck with you for the next <laughs> yeah. 30 minutes. And that turns out to just be something she recorded at the high school reunion, like hours before her death. Yeah, which is amazing. We love this show. Um, and I frankly, I think we love Sam. Yeah, the, Sam doesn't have the most interesting uh, plots. She's kind of... You know, there, there's a little bit of tug of war with her and Craig and Will. Um, mm-hmm. But she does have one great episode where yeah. for two years she's addicted to pills ambiguously. Mm-hmm. Um, they are prescription. We are not shown what they are, but she's always popping them. And she's like a... a there's stimulants of some kind, I feel like. Uh, I don't think we get even that much information, frankly. <laughs> to make I that think the Wikipedia page says they're stimulants. What but the like, fuck does Wikipedia know? We'll talk about the, the huge editorializing in a Wikipedia page <laughs> later on. <laughs> Um, but there's this one episode where Sam, she's doing her residency, um, and this woman comes in from, like, a car accident or something, and she's treating her, and she gives her medication, and then a couple hours later, the woman comes back, 
and just dies. Yeah. <laughs> in full view of the waiting room, by the way, because Will is there and has to see it. Yeah, and, welcome to Action Hospital, where we let you see everyone die. <laughs> for some reason, the view of... You can see where people are dying from the waiting room in yes. this hospital. Um, she dies, and her, like, resident... Whatever the name of, like, the boss of the residence is... It's like Chief of Residence, you know? Doctor... It's whatever, like, doc, Dr. House was this, I think, right? Sure. I think. Classic Dr. House. Classic Dr. House. He gets super mad at Sam being like, Oh, you stupid fucking bitch. You killed this woman because of because you're bad at your job. I'm gonna kill you. Um, Which is such a fun contrast from how this works in like actual medical dramas, yes, where like exactly. the chief of residence would say like, you know, letting them die is part of the fun of the job. Everyone kills one person a week at this hospital. Though. Yeah, I know it's hard because it's your first. You gotta choose which one. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, we'll let you make an informed decision. Yeah. You're kind of like God, aren't you? <laughs> Life and death hangs in the balance of our fingertips. Everyone here is Alec Baldwin and Malice. <laughs> um, but Sam is like, she's been addicted to drugs. She's like, oh my God, it was my pill addiction that caused this woman to die. Mm -hmm. I have to tell, you know, uh, the chief resident. Um, but then it turns out uh, that actually she didn't do anything wrong mm -hmm. and that the medication she prescribed was like the right thing to prescribe. And, like, she just had no way of knowing that the woman was allergic. Like, she made the right decision that happened to have the wrong outcome. Yeah. It was fine. So she goes to tell um, the woman's husband and son. It's like, I'm so sorry, you know. Um, something happened, and the medication that I prescribed your mother, she passed away. Mm -hmm. And what has led into this plot is in 2006, Craig and Will are at Sam's grave, and this young man rides up, and he's like, is that Samantha Brewster? She deserved to die. <laughs> and the whole episode, you're like, what the fuck? Took a very weird conclusion. From... Yeah. <laughs> like, how, how could that, you know, how could anyone possibly think that about Sam? And it turns out he was the son of the woman who died. Mm -hmm. And after that subplot concludes, it cuts back to uh, Will talking to this young man in 2006 and being like, oh, so you just misinterpreted. Like, <laughs> you just thought because she was telling you what happened that she, like, killed her and you just held on to that for the past like 12 years yeah. you thought that her saying those words to you is what caused the death <laughs> you thought that she understands killing words from dune <laughs> um but yeah no that kid's amazing he is like very much a product of them being in the middle of the season like oh fuck we don't have any false leads for killers. We need to just, like, stack these guys up as fast as possible. Um, oh, malpractice kid, sure. <laughs> and he just, like, again, shows up in that gra uh, graveyard in 2006 and is like, Sam Brewster deserved to die. And he starts walking away and Will's like, excuse me, young man, what do you mean by that? And he just goes, ah, I'm shy. <laughs> <laughs> Takes, like, the entire episode to get the context out of him. Yeah. Um, why don't we talk about Aaron? Yes. Because Aaron is an interesting fellow. Mm -hmm. um, he's introduced as, like, the nerd character. He's very, like, oblivious socially, obviously, to Carla's advances for a while. Yeah, he's not a malicious guy by any stretch, but, like, kind of half his dialogue towards Carla in the first few episodes of the series is like, Good morning, Carla. I will never love you in that way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, but the main sort of thing that happens to him midway through the series is we talk about we mentioned earlier that he goes to Prague for three weeks. Mm -hmm. And while he's there, he has a before sunrise where he has this amazing day in Prague on like this layover with this French woman named Pascal. Mm -hmm. They end up sleeping together. 
they and even do the fucking um like people watching game from before sunrise do. that was the because we were joking like oh he's doing his own before sunrise and then that happened and we were like oh wait this is an actual reference this is just a reference to that movie explicitly um and it's even more so because several years later they do it before sunset yes um, not not in the way that the movie works but as we mentioned in carla's segment mm-hmm. um pascal returns with aaron's child and he decides you know i want to be a part of my kid's life let's get married but they have like a super tumultuous relationship um i, I think it's really to the show's credit like from what we've been describing so far emotional maturity is maybe not the phrase that you would associate with this show yeah but it does kind of get more and more mature as it goes on. Um, towards the beginning, it's very much a teen soap, right? The characters are teens. The drama is kind of like teen melodrama style. And it gets a little mature as it goes on. Um, and I think one of like the smartest decisions in the whole thing is that like they have this moment of like, oh, let's get married because... We had these beautiful nights together in Prague and there was magic in the air. And now we have like this amazing, wonderful daughter that we both want to be there for. Let's just do it and like let fate guide us. And like in the next episode, it's like, oh yeah, off screen in the intervening year, our marriage has already fallen the fuck apart. Yeah, it is. I I think that the off, the way this show uses things that happen off screen is really, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, adroit yeah um because you know you would expect in a show like this where you're covering one year every episode among six people in 45 minutes you know you're gonna miss stuff um but i think the show is really smart about how like in an instant you know what you think is happening to one character just completely changes and you didn't even see what happened Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, we'll talk about it, but it's like, frankly, a reason why the show probably didn't do so well, because if you miss <laughs> one episode of this show in its original airing, everyone is in completely different circumstances than they were previously. Yeah. Um, but no, Aaron, you know, they have a whole before sunrise, before sunset, and eventually a before midnight, uh, when they have the divorce episode. Yeah. Um, uh, which is just funny that they predicted, like we mentioned earlier, they got to before midnight before Richard Linklater did. They just called Richard Linklater up and were just like, tell us what happens. <laughs> like, um, uh, like D&D just calling up George R. R. Martin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> being like, <laughs> but instead of being like, what happens to Westeros? They're just like, what happens to love? <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, Richard Linklater tucked both of the showrunners into a big bed and, you know, with the covers up to their noses and there's a little candle on a plate under nightstand and things of that nature. Exactly. Um, there's one of the six, always there were six, mm-hmm. but there's one we have to talk about. Of course, we can't talk about one without talking about the six, but we have just talked about the six. So let's talk about the one. Um, that's Craig. Are there going to be like inserts every time you mentioned the word six, um, of either the, uh, uh, the priest doing that monologue about how always there were six or Drake talking in a fake Jamaican <laughs> accent? I haven't decided yet. Well, I'll decide that it win the process of editing. Yeah. Um, uh, listen in three, two, one for Drake saying the word combination. <laughs> combination. Um, but we, we really should talk about Craig because Craig yes. is just so awesome. The, um, the little section that I have about him in my notes is titled Craig's Parade of Sniffling Evil. Yes. <laughs> I mean, the first thing he does in the show is convince Will to take the fall for him on a DUI. With amazing canted angles. Yeah, they do this like zoom in canted angle where it looks like he's going crazy. And he's like, what? But if you took the blame, 
then everything would be fine. Yeah. Then I, I would be able to go to Princeton or whatever. He I don't think he even goes to college, yeah. but that kind it's of like, thing. What if you were driving? You and like driving? it cuts to, to Will just like, but sir, I wasn't driving. I, I, I wasn't in, I was on the other side of the I car. I barely understand a motor carriage. I wouldn't understand brake from accelerate. Oh, a horse, I could do that. Again, he doesn't speak in a southern accent. <laughs> but that is the vibe of the character. That's the vibe, yeah. Um, but no, Craig just continues to do awesome evil stuff. Mm-hmm. He will always try to, like, make up for his evil. And that, like, after Craig takes the fall for him, he's like, Dad, you gotta help him. You gotta make sure he doesn't go to prison for the manslaughter that he, parentheses, I committed. <laughs> um, but, like... He'll always weasel out when there's anything actually on the line for him, right? Exactly. Um, and there's a couple more instances of that happening throughout the show. The most awesome uh, one is definitely, um, I mean, the most extreme one, I guess, is the last thing that happens in, mm-hmm. uh, well, in the flashback timeline. Yeah. Which is, um, he's at his, you know, he's running for Congress and he's having this birthday party at his apartment with all of his, like, you know, uh, campaign, like, employees and this one comes back hours later, super drunk. And he's like, all right, I'm not going to sleep with you, but why don't you just sleep this off? I'll check on you in an hour. And he flops her down, face down onto the couch. Mm-hmm. And then when he goes back to check on her, she's dead. Yeah, great work. <laughs> so then he calls his dad, who comes in with these like two like burly Chechen looking guys. Yes. He's like, don't worry, son, they'll take care of it. And they start like rolling her up in a rug. Yeah, just like... Two sentient leather jackets that can project, like, thumb-like protrusions <laughs> to <laughs> create the image of a human head. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. he. There's a lot of that sort of stuff of him, like, I'll call daddy to make this go away. Yeah, and, like, you know, when his dad is being like, okay, well, we're gonna dump this girl in, like, the park and make it just look like she OD'd. He is like, you know, but, but that's wrong, dad. And his, his dad is like, what the fuck? Then why did you call me and not the cops? <laughs> yeah. Here's a phone. You can call the cops. Clearly you're not going to. <laughs> and of course he doesn't do anything. Yeah. But it's, there's a thing, right? Like it seems to come from a very genuine place. It's not him bullshitting in that moment, right? Where it's like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to make myself look good. He genuinely in that moment is like, oh no, we're, this isn't right. We have to call the cops. But he's already made the decision. He's weak. He is he's very a, yes. weak in ways that, like, make for amazing TV. And then importantly, like, I think if he was more of, like, a straight-up asshole, you would spend, like, the whole series being like, well, why the fuck are any of these other guys friends with him? Yeah. But here it's like, he has enough of these moments of humanity that it's just like, you find yourself rooting for him in spite of knowing that, like, oh, he's obviously going to fuck up at every possible moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um... There's an amazing moment, which Mm -hmm. I'd like to set up. So there's this episode of Lost called Walkabout. Mm -hmm. It's like the third episode of the show. Well, let me explain it to you. Uh, No, I hate that. Okay. Uh, This has been the Lost Broadcast. (laughs) No, we'll... um... We are ending the run of the podcast here and now. No, yeah. Um, In Walkabout, the character of Locke, uh, it's one of his flashback episodes. And... um, in his time on the island, as we've seen him, he's the only one who seems to, like, view the crash on the island as a gift. Yeah. You know, he see, senses that the island is, like, a very special place. He's, like, an expert survivalist and naturalist, and he's, like, super at home out here. Seems like a total badass who is utterly composed, utterly in control. Yeah. And what we learn through the process of these flashbacks is, like, he had, he was this, like, totally shit on office worker, 
um, you know, he had this boring life, this boring job, and he wanted to go on this walkabout in Australia, um, in Sydney. And in fact, you know, the flight that crashed was from Sydney to LA. Mm-hmm. Um, so last trivia. <laughs> what was the number of the flight? I'm just going to make sure to boost the volume on that when I'm editing. Shut up. (laughs) Um, But then we see like the guy who was running the walkabout is like, you know, Mr. Locke, I can't take you. This is ridiculous. And the the camera reveals that he's in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's saying, you know, famously, don't, don't tell me what I can't do. And then it cuts on the island after the crash to him standing up. And somehow through some weird island magic, he is able to walk on the island. And it's this moment of, like, complete change in the show. It's beautiful. It's an all-time TV moment. Um, And you could tell that they were inspired by this in a number of ways. One quick aside that I want to make is that I think there is something in that flashback that probably inspired their approach to those, like, rapid-fire back-and-forth fake-outs that we've been talking about. Where in the first flashback that Locke has in that episode, he's, like, at a desk and he gets a phone call and somebody on the other end calls him, like, Colonel Locke. And he's like, is this line secure? And you first think, like, of course. He's, like, a war hero. He's spec ops or something. He was in, like, Vietnam, probably. But then it just turns out he's, like, a loser who's doing war gaming with his friend, like, at his, like, shitty dead-end office job. Yeah. And I think that type of, like, you you get zigged and then zagged and then zigged again in rapid succession is totally. something that very much informs this show. But in a more direct way, how does that inspire? As an example here? of that. Yeah. Um, so in 2006, the first time we meet Craig, mm-hmm. it's always a big event on the show when we see someone in 2006 for the first time, because it's always very mysterious how they got to the circumstances that they're in. We see their amazing new looks, which we'll get into a little later. <laughs> oh, yes. The first time we see Craig, Margarino has come to his house and Craig is like chilling in the pool, uh, you know, while he's being sort of interrogated and interviewed. And then he pulls himself out of the pool and into a wheelchair. And oh my God, mm-hmm. Craig's in a wheelchair in 2006. How did this happen? What happened to him? And I was like, oh my God, they did a reverse walkabout. Mm-hmm. Like in the reverse chronological direction. Yeah. Um, but then. Then. <laughs> a couple episodes later, in 2006, we see Craig in his home on the phone with someone. In his wheelchair. He hangs up the phone. And then he just stands up. And actually, the wheelchair is just a lie. And he can walk secretly the entire time Mm -hmm. and at that moment i think i shouted out loud this show's done miracles on me (laughs) yeah just repeatedly because it was like oh my god they did a reverse reverse walkabout at one point i remember shouting this show makes me want to open a restaurant (laughs) (laughs) we still don't know what that means no no more context will ever be provided for that (laughs) uh just just absolutely just like chef's kiss beautiful misdirection upon misdirection mm-hmm. with craig just just awesome awesome storytelling yeah um we love all these characters frankly um it's kind of insane that there's no duds right because like every yeah. other show that we've watched even as there have been parts of it that we have liked um there has been at least one character that just made our skin crawl actively whether it was russell verone in invasion or dr serco in surface or Dr. Fenway and Threshold, like, all of those guys just feed them into a wood chipper repeatedly, please. Yep. No one's bad here. No, they're, we, they're all, like, you know, lovable and, like, super watchable and entertaining. Like, yeah. I would not cut a single person from this cast. Yeah, you want to root for all of them. And, like, 
if there's one critique about the cast that we had sort of early on, it's this idea that like, like we mentioned, it doesn't necessarily feel cohesively like it is one close knit group of six, but more like two groups of three. And then those groups are sort of like linked by um, Carla and Sam being close. And so like you think to yourself watching like, the first half, it is like, you know, this is a little more difficult to pull off than something like Lost or like any type of show, right? Where it's like, you know, if, if um, two members of an ensemble don't interact until like episode seven or whatever, you don't really know what the dynamic between like Saeed and Hurley is like until then, as just an example. Then it's like, well, that's just not until episode seven. Here, you have gone through seven years of storytelling without uh, and like a given pair of these characters interacting once and it does feel a little stretched but when it comes down to it these characters are so likable they are so like charismatically portrayed and they're so kind of like individually lived in that all it takes is one scene to kind of like uh, uh reverse that there is in fact one episode that has like a b-plot between jenna and craig where they're at like their old yeah. high school and like reminiscing. For Jenna Moretti Day. For Jenna Moretti Day. Um, they are all watching Friday the 13th, 2009, <laughs> which is made a couple years after this. Unclear how they got their hands on that and Before Midnight. Weird. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're just like watching, you know, they're, they're like catching up with each other and um, having these like really heartfelt, emotional like reckonings and, and mature interactions about how like, oh, you know, why did we never get together? And like, would we have lasted? And it's the sort of thing where it's like, yes, this is exactly what those two characters, even though they have never like shared screen time before, really, except as like an ensemble, what they would be interacting like. And you immediately buy that they've been friends for this whole time. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing that on a worse show would end with them kissing and like sleeping together and like, oh my God, the drama, but it just is able to exist as this very sweet, tender moment between friends. Um, and that's, there's this amazing scene in that, uh, subplot where like they break into the principal's office at the high school to look at their permanent records Yeah, and they're like, oh, this will be so fun. Like see what we were. And then they start reading them and Craig is like, wow, the principal said that like, you know, I would never amount to anything and my life would be a joke. Cause I just go work for my rich dad. And Jenna's like, yeah, he said the same thing. Like I would like fail as an actress and you know, I would never uh, do anything with my life. And they just both get really sad. And it's again, like. That was a moment where I had the thought of, like, this show matures along with the characters. Exactly. In a really remarkable way. Like, the early episodes are, like, so, you know, rapid-fire plotted. I mean, the whole thing is. Mm -hmm. But, like, they have these real, like, emotional highs that feel like the sort of thing that, like, you know, teenagers would experience. But as the show goes on, the drama, like, it's still very heightened, but it's, like, more subdued and realistic in a Mm -hmm. way that's, like, this is how more mature adults would handle these problems. And it, it makes their maturity feel earned is the thing. Cause you think back to like five episodes ago where it's like, Oh, this character would have been way too childish to like show this level of restraint or forgiveness or compassion or whatever mm-hmm. back when, you know, they were 22 or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, there is one more character we should talk about is and that, that is uh, the needle drops. <laughs> which are sort of a character in their own right (laughs) you know we talk about something we talked about with a lot of these shows so far is that like um they will often start with like a big needle drop in the pilot and then you're like 
oh, the music budget just evaporates after that. Mm -hmm. You never hear something like that again. Somehow they keep finding it here. Yeah, when we heard Don't You Forget About Me in the first scene of the first episode, we were like, oh, it's going to be another one of those situations. Like a Mm -hmm. big, very famous song at the beginning and then nothing after. Um, I'm going to read every single needle drop on the whole run of 13 episodes of Reunion that we recognized. Yeah, this is like the infomercial for the Reunion box set. (laughs) We are just laying out Now that's everything. what I call reunion. Now that's what I call reunion. Um, all right, here we go. Don't you forget about me, Simple Minds. Time after time, Sydney Lauper. Take on me, Aha. Papa Don't Preach, Madonna. The one I love, R.E.M. Don't Dream It's Over, Crowded House. If You Leave, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Heaven, Brian Adams. Love Song, The Cure. Drives Me Crazy, Fine Young Cannibals, which I want to note that Hannah predicted. Woo! Uh, because she was looking at like, oh, this episode is this year. What were the top songs of that year? Of 1990. Of 1990. I bet that song would be in there. And she was right. Uh, Listen to Your Heart, Roxette. Losing My Religion, R.E.M. Right Here, Right Now, Jesus Jones. Unbelievable, E.M.F. All I Want, Toad the Wet Sprocket. There's No Other Way, Blur. Running on Faith, Eric Clapton. Hey Jealousy, Gin Blossoms. Two Princes, Spin Doctors. Runaway Train, Soul Asylum. Everybody Hurts, R.E.M. Hmm. Come Undone, Duran Duran. Landside, Smashing Pumpkins, the cover version. Esther insists that nobody has ever heard this. No, if you listen to Landslide, you're going to listen to the fucking Fleetwood Mac version or maybe Dixie Chicks. Just remember that I'm 40 years old, so I grew up hearing the Smashing Pumpkins (laughs) version. Anyway. I am Jenna Moretti. There's more. Um, Glycerin, Bush, Kiss from a Rose, Seal. Carnival, Natalie Merchant. Till I Hear It From You, Gin Blossoms. Lightning Crashes, Bye. How's it gonna be? Third Eye Blind. Can't get enough of you, baby. Smash Mouth. That's 30 needle drops across 13 episodes of network television. Just the ones we recognize. Yes, there there were some we couldn't place. There were some we think just come from production libraries. Mm -hmm. Extraordinary amount of, like, actual music. Yeah, we were thinking that, like, oh, by the time they get to the 90s, is it gonna be, like, a beloved but really obscure band called, like, Grunch? That's just like, you know, three guys who know like two chords between them and, uh, you know, play music that people will tell you was like really influential and powerful. But no, yeah. they just kept doing songs that were like really huge at the time. You might have noticed something about that list. Okay, let's do a quick math comparison between number of songs by the Gin Blossoms <laughs> and number of songs by Black artists. Okay. Ooh, that appears to be two to one. <laughs> Seal is as black as this show gets in this regard. Yeah, um, which we had been talking about. We're going up as like we were entering the 90s. Like what? Like, you know, hip hop is a huge part of like the musical fabric of that decade. Mm -hmm. What songs are they going to pick? No N.W.A. No L.O. Cool J. No Dre. Yeah, nothing that just like gets you at any of like the, the, the hints of like the massive takeover of popular culture by, by black culture that just was was really prominent in the 90s and especially like you would have had to imagine that by the time they got to the 2000s they would have had to have relented if they had gotten there because yeah. it's like how are you gonna tell us that that's 2004 three doors down hooba staying <laughs> grow up <laughs> um but yeah like for as much as we love the show we are not immune to criticizing it and the fact that it eats around the black parts of culture like they're mushy peas um, is definitely a downside of this. And also, you know, like, 
Margarino being the one black character and having this like mindset of like, you know, I want revenge for the fact that I didn't have a father. Act, no, that's not true. There is another black character. Who's it's that? Will's cellmate who tries to blackmail him into oh, robbing the house. Yes, who is portrayed as like really friendly and chill for the first half of the episode, but then like by the time he starts going in on that um robbery plot, it's just like every line of his from then on is just like by the way, I am bad for the neighborhood. I am not a jogger. And you better call all sorts of numbers when you see me. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's it's rough. It's, yeah. It is not the most raci- racially conscious television program. You don't want to apologize for something like this. Um, I would say that it's probably not more racist than the average thing that was in 2006, but that is very much an indictment of the mid-2000s rather than a defense of reunion. Yeah, for sure. So to speak. Um, so by the way, as we're talking about sort of the plot of this, and as we mentioned, you know, that the show sort of loses interest in the murder mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, so we never got an answer yeah. to who the killer is. We kind of lost interest in a murder mystery, didn't we? I mean, <laughs> it was not the most interesting part of the show by the end, by a long shot. When's the last timestamp where we actually talked about it? I, I, I'm sure someone listening will go, go back and see. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be curious to see that. Yeah. Um, so after the show was canceled, um, John Harmon Feldman, who was a co-creator of the show, said in a statement, I couldn't find the statement. It just says in the Entertainment Weekly article that he said this in a statement. Um, because the events of Samantha's murder are partially reliant on characters we haven't yet met and events we haven't yet seen, there is no way to solve the mystery without being able to complete the full arc of our story. Mm-hmm. Which I think speaks to like how disinterested reunion was, was in being a like murder mystery where you would get a new clue every week or a murder mystery, like, you know, a a Poirot or like Columbo thing where it's like, if you go back to the beginning, you know how you'll be able to see how it's going to play out if you're paying attention, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, a thing that is great about mystery stories that I love, but like, that's just not what reunion is. Reunion is always intending to be the kind of story. That's just like this really naughty, complex web of characters and lives and stories that eventually will get us to the point where this murder can happen. Yeah. But there is no like, Oh, a clue at the beginning, you'll be able to predict exactly who the killer is. Which like, I mean, I think that this makes it the most lost like of the lost alike so far. And that like lost also got slammed for being really bad about providing regularly regimented answers. And this has the same idea where it's like, well, yeah, we have a conceit here that is a central mystery, but we're really just going to use that as like a backdrop against which to have like these really heightened drama character moments, larger than life, you know, redemption, love, betrayal, trust, all of this stuff, you know, that just happens to the characters is what matters more than like, did you get 5% more intel this episode? But the result of that is that, you know, unlike the other shows we've talked about, which were able to reconfigure, um, the last episode before they got canceled into like a possible series finale threshold was the main one that did this of like, they literally shot a new scene to act as sort of a more, more of a conclusion to the story just in case they didn't get renewed. Mm -hmm. Um, reunion couldn't do that because you know, if you do a little thing that reveals who the killer is and you get renewed, then you're fucked. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't get renewed, then it doesn't matter because like, it would whatever whoever the killer is and why they did it it would make no sense without seeing the rest of the story yeah if i find john harman feldman at any point i am gonna ask him who the killer was mm-hmm. um so i'll keep you posted on that it, john, john harman feldman if you're listening to this please 
At, at Lost Broadcast on Twitter. I have encounters every day. Um, who's to say that one of them won't be with John Harmon Feldman? The Lost Broadcast at gmail.com. Please, John Harmon Feldman. We are closing it to everybody except you. Yeah. We are blocking addresses that don't contain the strings John <laughs> Harmon and Feldman. <laughs> um, now, just because we never got the answer straight from the source doesn't mean that Brazil couldn't say freely invent. Yeah, Brazil had, Brazil had their own ideas. What the Wikipedia page refers to as freely inventing their own ending, which was delivered by some narration and title cards. I love the sassy tone of this uh, show's Wikipedia article. Yes. Um, just very quickly, I want to digress here. Um, there is an amazing thing in a plot synopsis for episode six that says two teenagers who are having beers in the East River discover something that was thrown into water. Parentheses. Remember what it is? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty incredible whoever wrote these. We salute you. They kept us laughing. Yeah, we know your IP address and we will be hacking it until <laughs> we can, like, thank you properly. Uh, but no, the when these episodes aired on Brazil, they came up with their own ending. Um, and in that ending, uh, the killer was Sam's daughter, Amy, <gasps> who you might recall in the final episode was showed to have burned to death in a house fire yeah like we see like the smoke inhalation photos of her body and it was really fucking harrowing for us and we immediately go on wikipedia and find out that she was supposed to be the killer and it's like what the fuck <laughs> um and then it would say that she sam is like you know sitting there clinging to life and then russell brewster shows up and finishes her off out of revenge for you know something or other that we never really got explained yeah. in, the, in the actual run of the show um, Dave Annabelle allegedly confirmed this in late 2006. Dave Annabelle plays Aaron. So I don't know how he would know. <laughs> he got in touch with Brazil. He, he called up Brazil. Um, like DJ Khaled calling up iTunes that one time. <laughs> said, I need more servers. He says, I need the murderer now. <laughs> um, it was yeah. just like, sir, this is the Brazilian embassy. <laughs> like, what do you mean you need the murderer? <laughs> but then he said the code word and they're like, oh, reunion right away sir yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, but i the, don't believe we have any reason to think that that's actually what the no. solution would be i don't think we have any reason to believe that they even knew when the show was canceled who the killer would be. yeah like i mean for one it directly contradicts what john said in that interview where it's like no that relies on information that we already had there's no like characters that we didn't meet that seem like central to that solution mm -hmm. so like someone's bullshitting it might be all of them <laughs> very likely all of them but it's very unlikely that dave annabelle is the one who is correct <laughs> and everyone else is lying exactly yeah um there was a comparison you wanted to make with reunion that like, i think we should yes talk about. it's it's halt and catch fire yeah um it's one of our favorite shows um both of us it is a show that like made us cry consistently and it's a show that I remember not liking that much in my first watch through, partly because like it starts kind of weak, um, but also because like it felt like it was a show that had a trick, which is that it is character melodrama between a, a strong, very charismatic core cast that is kind to each other and hurtful to each other in constantly fresh combinations every mm -hmm. few episodes. Yeah. And Reunion is kind of that on a faster scale. Um, and so I love it. Not quite as much as like Halt and Catch Fire, but like, I know this is controversial. Esther, when I told her this before we recorded, uh, looked at me with a lot of shock and confusion. We will lose 90% of our listeners uh, for me saying this, but like, this is a top 10 TV show of all time for me. I think this is better than The Wire. This is better than Arrested Development. This is certainly better than Succession. 
Um, and if you uh, have any issue with that, remember, I'm Esther, okay? <laughs> Send these to Esther specifically, your complaints about that. Not Hannah. She's way too kind to hear any of that. And I, for my part, really liked this show. Yeah. <laughs> that's about as far as I'll go on that score. It's, it's a very good show. Yeah. Genuinely, no irony. It's not a, didn't make an all-time favorite for me, but like, I don't blame mm-hmm. you. Like, this is a very lovable show, and I think we were both feeling super melancholy when we didn't have any more episodes to watch. I mean, that's kind of the thing, right? Is that like, I've woken up in the few days since, you know, we have finished watching this um, before recording and just thought to myself like, damn, there's never going to be any more reunion. Yep. And like, I, as much as like, I really respect and admire a lot of shows, like I don't really have those feelings about them. And maybe it's just because this one got cut short so soon. But it's almost like the fact that it got cut short just makes it that much sweeter unintentionally in the sense of like, the show is about the unexpected places that your life will take you and the fact that like things get cut short and you'll face these cruel turns and twists and like for it to end that type of way, not saying this is like a secret genius auteur thing, but like it unintentionally, I think, makes it all the more like leaving this beautiful little hole in my heart. Yeah. Uh, and if you want to get sadder, let's talk about how the network treated this show. Um, very poorly. Very poorly. So premiered at the beginning of September 2005. Mm-hmm. 6.6 million viewers. Not like, bad. Not bad. Respectable. Like, you could build on that. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, episode two was delayed a week. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is that there was a presidential address about relief for Hurricane Katrina, which makes this the second show we've talked about on the Lost Broadcast that got screwed over by Hurricane Katrina. Womp womp. Yeah. Um, and that had a knock-on effect that we'll talk about later. But yeah. ap- a- then they aired episode three the following week, took an entire month off for Major League Baseball playoffs, mm-hmm. October, um, came back in November, had to take another week off after episode six for Thanksgiving, and in its time slot, Fox aired the film Daddy Daycare. Perfect decision. Yeah. Um, and then when it came back, you know, there were three episodes and just like, how do you keep an audience for a show like that when you're, when you're airing it in that way? It never got a consistent week after week run longer than yeah. three episodes. Oh, and there is a big what if here because, you know, I found a quote promoting the show early on from, from uh, John Harmon Feldman. who basically said, when we head into our month long baseball hiatus, the audience will know that it's down to one of two people in that coffin and the first episode back, which is episode five, they will definitely learn which one is dead. Mm-hmm. So at episode four, we narrow it down to two possible suspects for the victim. And then in episode five, we get the reveal. The idea being that you're going to be on waiting on tenderhooks in that whole month. Like, oh my God, I can't wait to find out. Unfortunately, because they got bumped back a week because of the presidential address, it was only episode three they were up to by the time they took a month off. And what did Mr. Bush say that was so important? I, I who, who cares? He yeah. could have waited an extra night. He was announcing the FEMA camps. It's like a big deal. We had those already. <laughs> <laughs> they had those in 2000 when I played the first Deus Ex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's just like, it's just sad. Like the, the, that the show got screwed so badly. Like, mm-hmm. How do you follow a show like this when it's airing so intermittently? Yeah. And like, like we mentioned, basically, that like, if you watch a soap, then you can like a, a proper daytime soap, you can miss episodes, even though like weird shit is constantly happening. Because do you know how many episodes, for example, General Hospital has? Like a 
thousand it's fifteen thousand. Oh my god it's fifteen thousand episodes so like they produce like two three hundred of these a year right yeah, yeah 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 whereas here it's like if you miss an episode because you don't know when it's gonna air if it's gonna be on air this thursday or like you, you forget because it wasn't on last week or whatever then all of a sudden you come back and it's like two years later in all these characters lives exactly and like, they're in irrevocably be different places um the the previously on segments on the show are so fucking stuffed to the gills <laughs> that I think we're going to use uh, one of them as like our preview clip for this yeah, exactly. uh, episode. So you'll have seen that by now. Yeah. Um, there was one other problem with the broadcast of Reunion, unfortunately. What was that? Which is that uh, competing in its time slot was a show called CSI Crime Scene Investigation. NCIS? Mm, CSI. Jag? So it's CSI. Jag? <laughs> so it's yeah exactly so the, the, how many how many viewers is that pulling this obscure show so here's the thing i am someone who is more aware than most people of like nielsen inflation in this era of broadcast television mm-hmm. i was still staggered by how many people were watching csi at this point this season of csi was routinely pulling like every single week 30 million viewers. That's insane. That is like... 30 million. That is the big short is about to happen style number. <laughs> yeah, that is the most like the housing bubble's about to pop. Two thirds of those views came from like extremely beige homes in Florida subdevelopments. <laughs> where, where they just leave the TV running all day. Yeah, yeah, And occasionally you just sort of like float into the TV room, standing up with your arms folded, looking up at it. Never down, but up. <laughs> But all of those homes got, like, repossessed and, like, uh, uh, nuked by 2008. <laughs> and they couldn't watch CSI anymore. Yeah, it's just, Reunion had no fucking chance. Yeah. It was also, um, its lead-in was the OC, which I think, like, it's the same thing as Lost Into Invasion that yeah. we discussed in our first episode. Of, yep. Like, well, conceptually it makes sense that you would have, like, fans of one of these shows would like to watch another show in that same genre. But it's like, well, if you've just dealt with, like, an hour worth of, like, melodrama, soap opera stuff with the OC, are you really going to be jumping for a second hour of that with Reunion? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that, like, there are so many factors that just made this fail. And it's, it's all sad, but, like, they all, they could have seen it coming in so many ways. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I should say, when asked about what Reunion Season 2 hypothetically would be about, mm-hmm. uh, Feldman said that uh, the plan was to use either a regular or new character as a transition to a different group of people, which is a concept that I really dearly love. It's like how they said that Cloverfield 2 was going to be about like just someone else with a camera in the city at that time. Mm-hmm. That's basically what Reunion 2 would have been. A regular or new character transitioning to a different group of people Sounds very much like chat GPT describing. <laughs> it does. <laughs> like a marriage or something. <laughs> That's you asking uh, what uh, where babies come from, from chat GPT. <laughs> um, so but, like, what that I think makes me think of is the fact that like reunion was ahead of its time yeah. in a couple of ways. Um, and we're not saying that to just sort of be like, oh, it was too good. Um, you know, they didn't deserve it back then. We're saying that a little bit. But um, like... What they're describing there with, like, transitioning to a new group of characters with maybe, like, the tiniest connections to the first season is a limited series, is an anthology series. And those types of things did not exist in the mid-2000s. If you had a TV miniseries, it would have been, like, 
I don't know, Stephen King's Rose Red, which apparently I'm determined to mention every three or four episodes. <laughs> um, but like, you know, there wasn't something like American Horror Story. There wasn't like these like prestige shows that deliberately are just a one season limited run. Um, so this trying to be something like that really kind of, it was super ambitious formally and structurally. And so of yeah. course it was going to be something that was a little harder to sell people on. The critics hated the show. Um, they, they absolutely shredded the show. Which, again, if you have critic mind, I get it. Um, Especially in the mid-2000s, if you're a TV critic and your whole gig is like making, you know, making yourself seem way smarter than whatever you're talking about. Yeah, if you like television, but without any of that pity stuff. <laughs> uh, 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 Garçon, uh, there's pity in my television. Yeah. <laughs> I asked for television without any pity whatsoever. Um, Esther loves the Garçon bit so much that we went to an Applebee's at one <laughs> I, point and she uh, had one cocktail and had literally called over a waiter by saying, Garçon, and then <laughs> immediately sick. realized, like, oh no, I'm not. I did that in real life. Whoops. <laughs> I love her so much. I love you too. Even if you you're so. determined to embarrass me on our podcast. Yeah. All of your secrets will come out kind of like in reunion. Kind of like, well, in reunion, not all of the secrets came out. Eventually. Thankfully. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you want to talk about the showrunners? It's not as interesting to be honest. No, um, not really. Um, I mean, I think that it's mostly just a sort of thing where it's like you read about the showrunners and it makes sense. First one, we've mentioned him a couple of times, uh, John Harmon Feldman. He first wrote and produced for The Wonder Years, which was another show that like took this very like stolid, um, you know, established type of uh, form of like the, the coming of age sitcom and got pretty ambitious with it. Um, and he also did like, he was a veteran of the primetime soap world. He was a big wheel on Dawson's Creek. He show ran a couple of shows called True Calling a show called Big Shots that was supposed to be like a gender-swapped sex in the city, which sounds like the most annoying thing in the world. <laughs> I'm only mentioning because there was a subplot about a trans woman ruining a CEO's career in that one. So Hell trans yeah. mentioned. Let's go. Um, and a show called No Ordinary Family, which was like a domestic superhero family show. Um, it was just like, okay, let's do The Incredibles again. Yeah. Uh, the other showrunner was Sarah Goodman, um, who does not have a Wikipedia page. Mm -hmm. This is her earliest IMDb credit, and she never did any other show running. Yeah. Um, so you started strong, ended oh. strong, let's go. Uh, she was a producer on Gossip Girl eventually. Yeah. Uh, recently she's been writing on shows like Preacher and the I Know What You Did, I Know What You Did Last Summer show. Did not know that existed. Um, there was like a whole trend of every slasher series having a TV show recently. There's, uh, she's doing, uh, I think... Uh, in like the next year or two a Cruel Intentions TV show so like sure I won't watch that I'm not gonna watch that but good for you yeah Um, and then there was like a surprisingly robust crew of directors yeah there's um, a guy who worked who got a BAFTA nomination for The Sinking Detective which is another like it's a UK show from the 80s that like everybody I know who's watched it tells me that like this is an incredibly influential experimental show that like was known for its, like, creative use of music and needle drops and also, like, you know, just really pushing the form forward. And it's like, where have you heard that shit before? Yeah. The guy who directed the Muppet movie directed an episode of the show. Not Frank Oz, the, like, 2011 Muppet movie, we should say. Oh, is it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I don't think Frank Oz directed for Reunion. What? I would have been very excited about that if that was the case. Oh, no. That's so sad. 
Okay. Um, I feel... No, 1979, Muppet movie. Wait, oh my god. Wait, am I the idiot? Yeah. Did Frank Oz not direct the Muppet movie? I don't know that, do I? I clearly don't know that either. James Frehley directed a 1979 Muppet movie. Huh. Um, so yeah, I mean, like, what you can put together from this is that, like, it's not the sort of thing where you, like, look at their other stuff. Um, like, I'm not going to watch any of the other shows that John or Sarah worked on. But it makes sense, right? There's experimental TV bona fides and primetime soap bona fides. So, like, of course, all those personnel would collide and make something that is great, but also kind of singular. And we're not rushing out to watch Gossip Girl or Dawson's Creek. I'll be like, what if it turned out that I just have dog shit taste and that, like, <laughs> every primetime soap does this to me? <laughs> and I, like, come to you a month later and I'm like, you don't understand. Party of Five and Melrose Place are lost alikes. We need to watch them. <laughs> this becomes the OC broadcasts. Beverly Hills 90210, both the original and the remake, <laughs> are some of the most experimental boundary-pushing TV. Yeah. Um, that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. We will probably end up watching Dawson's Creek at some point. Yeah, it feels inevitable. <laughs> this <one. laughs> I saw the DVDs at, at Best Buy the other day, and I was like, I'm coming back for you someday. Amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I think we're wrapping up at this point. Um, the last thing that I want to mention, basically, is that we have joked in past episodes, and notably not joked here, about, like, oh, if you're the one person who's a huge fan of Invasion, if Invasion changed your life, then, like, you know, the harass Esther or whatever. Um, we know exactly whose lives were changed by this show. It is, in fact, Alexa Davalos, Kyler Lee, and Amanda Rigetti, the three lead actresses, because according <laughs> to Wikipedia, at least, they are best friends in real life. Mm-hmm. And based on the fact that they are both like in their, they're all in their early 20s as of the show's uh, production, it's very possible they met on the set of the show. So even if they might not look back at this and be like, oh, this was a great show and I'm so sad that I didn't get to do more of it, it probably does have a special place in their hearts at the very least. And that warms my heart. To a huge extent. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the the idea here is that, like, if by any chance you had your life changed by reunion, um, my DMs are open. <laughs> I believe there was one, um, one AO3 post that we found for reunion, which was, like, a mm-hmm. couple paragraphs and not worth reading. I can and probably will be bullied into doing the second AO3 post about <laughs> reunion. <laughs> Yeah, if you if you want to, um, just like hit me up. I'm Hannah, remember, not Esther. Um, and tell me what pairing of characters to write a fan fiction about, and I'll see what <laughs> I can whip up. Yeah. Well, with that, I think it's time for us to go. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Um, th- we've been so excited to do this. We've been so excited to do this episode. We did it twice. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I hope you enjoyed. Thank you for listening to the Lost Broadcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you like the show... If you like the show, please review us on Apple Podcasts um, because I check that shit every day. Uh, Esther jumps for joy and does like little Gene Kelly heel clicks whenever. Yeah, give us five stars. Everyone says it does something. Uh, Maybe we get like a prize. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And special thanks to everybody who's reviewed it and said that like, I have no idea what basketball is or why they keep talking about it, but um, I still love the show anyway. We appreciate that so much. And as a reward, we will be doubling the length of the Smash McDouble in every subsequent episode. Eventually it will just become the show. 
Yeah. The um, subpodcast will eclipse the podcast. It will be two white women talking about basketball, and we will say that streets are saying all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, you could get in touch with us at Lost Broadcasts on Twitter or thelostbroadcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. None of you have done that email thing yet, but I am really hoping someone will one day. It'll be John Harlan Feldman. He'll be the first oh, one. Please, please, please. Um, and yeah, if you're wondering what we're going to do for our next episode, um, we have finished, like we said, with that prologue season. And they've all been corner cases, like we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so we haven't really gotten like the archetypal lost alike yet. The thing that when you close your eyes and are like, this show was really trying to be lost. We haven't done that yet. And to get there, now that we're free of like the strict chronology of like the first four to come out, we can maybe flash forward a little, so to speak, to get to the show that really hits all those boxes. Right? That's right. We are going to be talking about Jericho. What? <laughs> no, we're going to be talking about flash forward. Of we're course. talking about flash forward. Which I'm, really looking, I'm really looking forward to get to. So mm-hmm. um, tune in next month for that. Thanks again for listening and goodbye. Bye. Bye.